Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is Bill Press and Friends on the District Productive Network. Uh, we got to hear yesterday from Richard Burr and Mark Warner, uh, Burr, the North Carolina Republican uh, who runs the Senate Intelligence Committee, and his vice chairman, Mark Warner, uh, the Democrat of Virginia. They've essentially, Peter, taken uh, control of the spotlight of this investigation as Devin Nunes has turned into uh, a character from the Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey Circus, that I'm taking my kids to later today. Oh, you can see uh, Devin Nunes there. He's going to pop out of a car with eight or nine of his friends. <laughs> yeah, right. Because he has turned into a clown show. Yeah, it's a total clown show. Um, and, but at any rate, the Senate side is taking this opportunity, the void left by Devin Nunes for serious investigation, uh, and they are starting to talk seriously about investigation. They had a hearing yesterday. Uh, here is Senate Intelligence Chairman Richard Burr. Vice Chairman and I realize that if we politicize this process, our efforts will likely fail. Um, which is an important thing there. If we politicize this process, he says, meaning you, Devin Nunes, we will fail. If we do what Devin Nunes is doing over on the House side, and I, I also want to point out, uh, and it's nice that we have audio for this, Jamie. You've done a good job today. Um, there was uh, a question yesterday on MSNBC from Craig Melvin, the host there, to Congressman Ted Yoho of Florida, who's a large animal veterinarian. Which I don't know if that means he's like a large veterinarian who tends to animals or like he tends to large animals. I think it means the the latter there, that he's like a horse doctor. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> Ted Yoho, uh, which I think is code for Bozo, uh, was talking oh, no. to Craig Melvin yesterday. Craig Dad Melvin jokes. asked him uh, about, about who Devin Nunes works for. Let's listen to this exchange. Are you concerned at all that he was viewing what he said was classified information at the White House, then reported it back to the White House? Well, you, you got to keep in mind who he works for. He works for the president. He answers to the president. Does he or so, does he work for the constituents of his district? Well, you, you do both. But when you're in that capacity, you know, if you've got information, I, 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 I'm okay with what he did. Oh, man. What this world really needed was one more moron claiming to be a constitutional conservative who has no idea what the separation of powers are about. Oh, man. Does he, or does he work for the constituents of his district? That's unbelievable. Think this Devin is- Nunes works for the president of the United States. What's brilliant about what Ted Yoho said is that it is a fundamental misunderstanding of how the separation of powers mm-hmm. work and a complete understanding of what is going on in Devin Nunes' head. Okay, so yeah, so that's what I was going to get at, right? It, like, it's either a total misunderstanding of how things work and how things should be, right? Or, or a lack of understanding. Or it's just like willingly turning a blind eye to what's right to continue to carry water for your party. And this was a Kinsley gaffe. 
Yeah. This was like the the ultimate. So. Uh, Michael Kinsley, the columnist, uh, used to talk about gaffes, and it's when you unintentionally reveal something that you actually think is true. Yeah. That's the nature of a gaffe. That's what happened with Ted Yoho. He basically told us, how do House Republicans think of their role uh, vis-a-vis the president? And the answer is they work for him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I shouldn't say that about all House Republicans. It's not true about all House Republicans. But there is a moron caucus that doesn't get it. The moron caucus. I like that. I mean, it's like a, it's like literally you bundle together idiot sticks, light them in, on fire, and like throw them up in the air. Led by Congressman uh, Yoho. Yoho, code hey for ho. bozo. Hey ho. I think that works. Like, Yoho. If the, the B stands for the Y and the Z stands for the H, yeah. then you get whatever Intel reports Devin Nunes was looking at at the <laughs> White House when he secreted out of his car. Uh, based on a phone call, so let's let's back up a little bit and talk a, a little bit about what we found out about the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yesterday, which is uh, reported for the first time yesterday, is that uh, Devin Nunes, the House Intelligence Chairman, who had uh, who had said they had gotten some secret information uh, that he that basically showed that Trump transition officials were uh, incidentally and legally picked up uh, in U.S. spying. Um, during the transition, he, that he had said he had found that out because he was uh, told by national security sources, uh, and then it later turned out that he'd gone to the White House to find out. After he got back from the White House, he told the press that what was going on, and then he said he had to go inform the president. Uh, the The big thing that all this hung on was the idea that whoever told him this uh, worked in the national security apparatus, but not necessarily for the president of the United States, because Otherwise, why would Devin Nunes have to be an intermediary between White House officials and the president of the United States? Mm. Uh, this is the big sort of uh, question that's out there. It's one that Adam Schiff, the, uh, the ranking Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee, asked. It raised a profound question why they were not directly provided to the White House by the national security staff uh, and instead were provided through a securitist route involving the chairman. Um, if that was designed to hide the origin of the materials, uh, that raises profound questions about just what the White House is doing. And uh, the New York Times reports yesterday, uh, this was a, a big break. Um, I'm sorry, the, the, I think it was the journal that first broke the Oh, no, wait, it was the Times. It's hard to keep up with all of these breaks because they're happening so fast. Uh, but the Times reported yesterday that uh, Ezra Cohen-Watnick, uh, the senior director for intelligence at the National Security Council, and Michael Ellis, a lawyer who works on the national security issues at the White House Lawyer's Office, the Council's office, um, and previously worked for Devin Nunes, are the two officials who uh, who apparently helped provide these intelligence reports to Nunes. So these two people that work at the White House call up Nunes, apparently, and say, hey, got, got to come look at these reports. Uh, he goes over to the White House. He looks at the reports. They don't take them to their boss. Donald Trump didn't see this until after Devin Nunes saw it. Like, why would that happen? I, I don't know. Or Donald Trump saw this, or Donald Trump directed these people to find these reports yeah. uh, and then shared them with Devin Nunes. Uh, there's a third person involved um, that the Washington Post uh, added to the mix. There's another guy, uh, John Eisenberg who's uh, a top lawyer for the National Security Council. So basically three White House officials. I want to ask you a question, because uh, you're a longtime journalist. You're journalistic ethics, right? 
So yesterday, uh, Sean Spicer said that Devin Nunes is entitled to keep his sources secret because journalists do the same. So Devin Nunes doesn't have to say who he got the information from because journalists like yourself, John, if you talk to a source, you don't have to reveal your source. Is that? I think you, I mean, I would make it much more simple than Sean made it. I would just say nobody has to reveal their source unless compelled to. But don't you think there's I mean, a difference between a reporter? Uh, yes, I think I think Sean made a dumb parallel because the member of Congress and the reporter are inherently different and have different roles in society. That said, like so, the Sean bur- Spicer is also very dumb. The burden so on Nunes surprised. is if he goes out there and says something without a source, it lacks credibility. Yeah, okay. <laughs> until he points to a source. With journalists, um, journalists like live in an area of uh, at least they used to of public trust. Uh, where if a journalist tells you that they talked to an intelligence official, like you can largely assume, depending on, I guess, sometimes the journalist and the publication, that they actually talked to a national security official about whatever it was. If they say, you know, it wasn't somebody at the White House or it was somebody in this place, you can generally trust that to be true. Uh, Devin Nunes is a partisan, uh, and he's proved that over and over again. And for him to have credibility using anonymous sources, he's going to have to make them non-anonymous. But also, like... Because, by the way, politicians make stuff up and lie all the time. What? I'm completely floored by that. But I also think the bigger difference to make here is, you know, you as a reporter, we don't... Like, taxpayers don't pay for you to do that job, right? Correct. And so, like, when you're Sean Spicer and when you're Devin Nunes, like, the White House is the people's house. You have an obligation to disclose that information because you work for the people. Your public servant. I usually walk so you can't around. Really the cap- hi- you can't really hide behind that. I usually walk around the Capitol saying to members of Congress, "You work for me, son." <laughs> you take the Steve Bannon approach, yeah. of just like really insulting them to their face. Yeah, I Good. mean, no, but you're right. Uh, Devin Nunes doesn't work for uh, the President of the United States, as Ted Yoho thinks. God, uh, he works for his own constituents, and one would argue broadly for the American public, the taxpaying public that pays for his salary. Look, he doesn't have to say who who it is, but it has no credibility until he does. In studio with us now, a good friend of mine, uh, Bloomberg's Greg Giroux. He taught me everything I know about politics uh, and then forgot the 1% that he knew about politics that he taught me. And look at how you turned out. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I wanted to ask you about uh, the upcoming elections, the 28 midterms. Obviously, uh, we've got a couple of uh, special elections before that. I think there are five vacancies in the House right now. Correct. Uh, One uh, one really upcoming in Georgia that has grabbed a lot of attention. Uh, John Ossoff, a Democrat, is, uh, is getting a lot of attention down there in what used to be Congressman Tom Price's district. He's now... Tom Price, now the HHS secretary, uh, suburban Atlanta. Uh, Tom Price is based where my wife was born in uh, in Sandy Springs, Georgia. Um, there are something like eighteen Republican candidates for the for this this House seat, the Osa, the uh, the Price seat. Is that 
Yeah, they're, I, I forget the exact number, but you're pretty close, within a couple. And what's unusual about that race, and the first round race is on April the 18th, is that everyone, regardless of party affiliation, runs on one ballot. And if the top voter get top uh, vote getter gets 50% plus one, that person is automatically elected. Otherwise, the top two vote getters advance to a runoff election. So um, the, the the trick for Republicans, even though it's n- nominally a very Republican district, it's not. It's much more a uh, Mitt Romney, Johnny Isaacson, mainstream conservative Republican district. It is not a Trump bastion by any uh, stretch. It's uh, Georgia six is one of the most. Uh, uh, well-educated and higher educated, income. Yeah. Yes, well-educated. And if you look at the election results in 2016, where um, you, you changes to 2012, education was a r- real big factor. You saw some well-educated Republican areas drift more toward Hillary Clinton, m- much so pro-Trump. Uh, so the, the, the challenge for the Republicans is that Ossoff is basically the dominant Democrat running, but you have the Republican candidates splitting up the vote. And the nightmare scenario for the Republicans is that Ossoff somehow gets a majority of the vote in the first round election and wins it outright, which is probably his best chance to win the election when the Republicans are divided. But it's still a heavy lift for the Democrats because it's behaviorally still a Republican district, just not so much a pro-Trump district. Yeah, and you hear, you hear um, I, I saw in a, an Atlanta Journal-Constitution article the other day, um, one of the Republican chairmen down there saying we shouldn't let outsiders take over our district. Uh, which I thought was really interesting and kind of a dog whistle on on Ossoff being Jewish because uh, he's from the district. And mm-hmm. they're talking about outsiders taking their district. And it's like the guy's actually from there. Yeah. And so George, like, what do you mean yeah. by outsider? And Georgia is also one of the fastest growing states in the United States. So people are constantly moving to Georgia. It's probably going to gain another congressional district soon. So you have a lot of new people moving into Georgia and especially the outer suburbs of Atlanta. The, the outsider thing might not play so well with a lot of outsiders. <laughs> right. And well, it may not play well with those who understand exactly what that guy means. Right. Um, just to decode for you a little bit, uh, when you're when you call somebody an outsider and they're from where you're from, it probably has something to do with some other aspect of them than their actual yeah. uh, location of birth. Um, so, you said something that was interesting to me because I think we all believe this that when you see uh, one of these unusual open primaries, jungle primaries, whatever you want to call them, uh, or or any sort of runoff election, there are ways that we expect them to tip. So. Uh, if an incumbent gets forced into a runoff in a primary, you usually figure that incumbent's toast. Um, I wonder in this post-Trump era, when Democrats seems to be seem to be so intense about voting, that if this goes to a runoff, which will probably be a poorly attended election, whether there's a possibility that there's de- much more Democratic intensity to actually show up, find figure out. What election day? What the election day is, and actually show up. Yeah, I think there'll probably be a, a big education effort among Democrats to try and win this race. Of the five uh, open districts, four of them are being vacated by Republicans who joined the Trump administration, of which uh, the Price seat is one of them. One of them is a very heavily Democratic district in California. But of the four districts that Republicans have vacated, uh, the Georgia district is probably the best shot for the Democrats. And Trump only won it by a point and a half. It went for Romney by more than 20 points four years earlier. So if the Democrats are going to start to make a stand and try and, and these are the kind of districts they need to win. They need to win districts. If they ever had any chance at winning the majority in the House, they need a net gain of 24 seats. They need to win some of these 50-50 districts, slightly Republican-leaning districts, if they're going to have any shot at doing that. So I think they'd probably pour a significant amount of resources into this race.
Hey, everybody, this is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for The Bill Press Show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. And I'm John Allen back, uh, back in studio with Ben Carson, Ben Camisar of the ben Hill. Ben Carson. Ben Carson. You almost called him Ben Carson. Are you the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development? Possibly. And by the way, I figured out why uh, I'm slow to react to certain things this morning. It's because I'm not plugged in here, so I can't hear when the music stops and starts. Oh, boy. So that's just... Um, Hi, everybody. Good morning. Now you're going to hear everyone <laughs> making fun of you the entire time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Jamie's just been in there roasting you constantly. And, I can't uh, hear Jamie at all. Jamie, I haven't heard a single instruction from you all morning. Jamie, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. All right, now <laughs> I hear you. You haven't been plugged in all morning? No, I have not been plugged in all morning. Oh, boy. Gotcha. <laughs> All right, let's get back serious now. I uh, want to talk about Michael Flynn, the national, former National Security Advisor. I keep forgetting. He's the first guy that got bounced out of the White House, and it took about 10 seconds. Um, it turns out that he would like to get immunity in exchange for his testimony. What does that tell you? So it's tough. I mean, you don't, you don't love to draw conclusions here. On one hand, um, his lawyer said, you know, Michael Flynn certainly has a story to tell and he would like to tell it. So the question is, if they're shopping immunity, does that mean that they believe that there's enough there in Michael uh, that Michael Flynn has to, you know, turn that over and maybe go further up the tree? And if that's the case, then how many people are further up the tree than Michael Flynn? Very few. On the other hand, though, it's still, you know, if you're a smart lawyer, it might just be that you want protection for your client and there isn't, you know, there isn't anything, you know, maybe the buck does stop with him or if there is a buck to stop or maybe, you know, they're just looking for some security for their client. So far, the immunity deal, my understanding is it hasn't been reached. So I think, you know, if we if we see a, a deal that actually gets cut, then maybe it starts to raise some more questions. I mean, it sounds like nobody's racing to to take this deal from the congressional side or from the FBI. Yeah, you have the, con- uh, the House uh, Intelligence Committee that actually issued the statement that said we we are not considering this. So, right. You know, I think if 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 you if you saw people jumping to take this immunity deal, I would imagine that you'd, you'd be a little more worried if you were in the in the White House. But that said, I wonder. I always wonder about this. How do you kind of like if you're Michael Flynn? How do you toe that line of here's what I've got, but I don't want to tell you all of it, so you still give me immunity. Right. Yeah. You don't want to admit to crimes, for instance, before you get your immunity. Right, yeah. Uh, not that Michael Flynn uh, has committed crimes, or that Michael Flynn really cares uh, whether someone has committed crimes before they are imprisoned. Right, Jamie. Five people around her have had have been given immunity to include her former chief of staff. When you are given immunity, that means that you've probably committed a crime. <laughs> Jamie, can can you do the chant that Michael Flynn was leading at the Republican National Convention? Lock her up. That's right. Whoops. Yeah, the Internet age isn't so great when uh, when things come back to you like that. I feel like if you're going to like stand there on your high horse about somebody else uh, and how they should go to prison for crimes that they haven't committed, uh, I mean, I don't want to say schadenfreude is what I'm feeling, 
But I do feel like it's. I do. You I feel f- Schadenfreude. Yeah, I do. I taught my son the the word the other day because I was like, "You should know that word." Living in D.C., he should absolutely know that word. Yeah, um, I think it's more like for me, it's more like just a warning in life in general that you shouldn't go out there and like beat the hell out of other people for things that you yourself might do. Yeah, or you can just end the sentence right there, right? Stop! Don't beat the hell out of people. Right. Well, yeah. Well, <laughs> even for things you might whoa, not do. Well, yeah. No, fair enough. But like. If you're in a glass house, perhaps you shouldn't throw stones. Or, more appropriately, sometimes if you were in a stone house, maybe you shouldn't throw glasses. It works both ways. It does work both ways. And stone houses, frankly, sound like more structurally sound. Yeah, and people have stone houses, and sometimes they throw glasses in them, and the glasses break. Which is not as bad as shattering your entire wall. No, but it's still not good. But you know, here, you know, what's interesting that, that I find this is why I find this so interesting and so entertaining is like. The Trump people are masters at projection, so they will accuse everybody under the sun of doing exactly what they're doing, right? So if they're lying, they'll accuse somebody of lying. If they're potentially breaking the law, they'll accuse somebody of breaking the law. If they're having their own private email server situation, they'll accuse somebody else of having that. And so, like, literally just about – I mean, Donald Trump talked about all this Bill Clinton – sexual perversion stuff, right? Donald Trump was on tape. To be fair, they have both projected themselves in that way. Fair. No, that I mean that's not that's not <laughs> wrong, but like like the difference is that Donald Bill Trump Clinton, talking about people rigging the election. The it looks like the election may have been rigged in his favor. The clear difference is that um on the on the the sexual proclivities piece that Bill Clinton has never bragged about sexually assaulting women. He's denied sexually assaulting women. Uh, he's lied about his sexual congress. Oh, I just used those words in the same sentence. Told you, man. Uh, with, uh, with certain people, but he has not gone out there and said, it's a really good idea if you assault women. I like to ass- I'm not going to say that. <laughs> Bill Clinton has not gone out there, as Donald Trump has done, right. and said that he liked to assault women. By the way, I just didn't want an audio clip of me yelling that. I hope you don't mind. That's fair. Uh, ben, what do you think is um, the most interesting element right now of the uh, Russia-Trump investigation, Michael Flynn, Devin Nunes kind of clown show? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just not getting straight answers is something that's sort of frustrating in the sense like, you know, we've seen this this Nunes, this whole Nunes piece has just been boggling because it seems like, you know, it seems like a lot of unforced errors and maybe a lot of this is unforced errors, but you have Nunez, you know, whisking off to the White House and then the White House saying doesn't pass the smell test, does probably not coming from us. Then you've got Nunez saying to Bloomberg, nah, it didn't come from the White House. It's an intelligence agent, met him on the White House grounds, not the, not from the White House. And then the whole time everyone's sort of wondering, well, then why'd you go to the White House? And sure enough, for this New York Times story comes out the you know, yesterday that says, well, you got because he got the information for the White House. So it just sort of seems like there's so many steps backwards that need to get taken before you can kinda you know to to rectify the, you know, false statements or misleading statements before you even move forward to try and figure out what exactly, you know, gets the bottom of what went wrong. What is the most charitable explanation for the way Devin Nunes has handled this entire situation? That's a good question. I mean, I, I, I'll be honest. I mean, I'm not, I haven't been up, you know, following his twists and turns in general. I think you'd have, I don't know. I think you'd, I think you'd have to really take a look and see what, you know, maybe how some of his statements could get parsed. I mean, maybe, maybe it, 
maybe this New York Times story um, was a little bit, it was a little, um, didn't specifically say that, you know, the White House handed him this information. Maybe the those two people helped, you know, were brought to, if you're talking most charitable, maybe an intelligence agent came to those two people in the White House and maybe said, hey, you should get this to someone. I don't really want to ha- put my job on the risk. Maybe they handed it to a gardener who handed it to him. Like, who knows? So what a, the... That's a charitable one. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, I my conclusion on this is that Devin Nunes has lost his judgment um, and lost his ability to, to really be tethered to reality uh, and has lost his ability to be an independent uh, judge of what goes on with Donald Trump um, and should have lost his ability to review intelligence information because the first thing he did when he did review intelligence information was go out and hold a press conference about the intelligence information that he received. I mean, there's no – this has been a slow – a long, slow walk toward, you know, just every, everything being politicized and it's kind of this hope that, you know, well, maybe the intelligence committees, you know, they realize that there's so much of a bigger situation at stake that everyone kind of needs to stay in their lane and make sure they don't, you know, jump to conclusions or anything. I guess it seems – you know, it's it's troubling that, you know, now you at least have the House Intelligence Committee that's broiled now in the same partisanship that everyone's been having for years. But now, you know, the stakes are obviously higher because it's you the said, Intelligence Committee. You said partisanship with a P at the end, not a T at the end, right? Because <laughs> I was thinking the T at the end. Either could work. Same. Yeah. you could We could swap those two out. Um, we can't say that on the air, no, though. No, you can't say that on the air. Uh, can we spell it? That would be a bad idea. Let's not find out. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just curious. I'm always curious, like, what's the... So, I think you make a great point there, Ben, which is uh, Devin Nunes, and I'll put this in my words, not yours. I'll I'll reframe. Nobody should blame me for this, but uh, Devin Nunes has proved himself to be a partisan and a lackey for the White House, uh, rather than using his oversight role as uh, an opportunity to investigate and to hold accountable the White House. He's instead using his position to shield the White House, the exact opposite of uh, what the founding fathers intended when they separated the powers between the branches. Uh, he has made a mockery of the idea of separation of powers. He has made a, mo- uh, a mockery of himself uh, in running around like Donald Trump's little lackey, uh, dashing off to the White House to receive this information, then going out to try to clear the president's name with the press, then saying that he's going to go brief the president on things that the president's own aides dug up, potentially uh, certainly not denied by the White House at the insistence of the president. As Sean Spicer said, Jamie, yesterday, when asked whether uh, asked whether uh, President Trump had ordered these particular intelligence reports up, this is what Sean said. Did the president direct anyone in this White House or in his national security team to try to find information or intelligence to back up his assertion about wiretapping? Um, I don't. I'm not aware of anything directly. I'd have to look into that. Um, I'm not aware of anything directly. I'd have to look into that. That um, sounded evasive, didn't it? Well, I think they also did that last part of I'll look into that. The other thing that was pretty telling from yesterday's briefing was when you know people have been asking him for days. So if Devin Nunes gets onto White House grounds, you don't just kind of walk in. You know, there's security. There's people have to. Someone's got to escort you in there. And for days, reporters have been asking, you know, well, so who cleared him to come into White House grounds? Uh, and finally, after the story came out, um, what uh, Sean Spicer ended up saying was that, you know, I told you I'd look into it. I didn't tell you. I'd tell you the, you know, what I found. 
So, right. So obviously he found something that would not be helpful well, to the or, case. And yeah, it just sort of it comes into the like he said for that question. You know, I'll look into it. But the question is, it's great if you look into it, but it's not great if if no one ever finds out the you know the conclusion, right? Other voice you hear in the room belongs to Nahal Tusi, uh, who works at Politico. I don't know what your title is these days. I'm sorry. I'm the foreign affairs correspondent, or a foreign affairs correspondent. Oh, it's thanks, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> Nahal, with whom I worked at Politico uh, many years ago, not that um, many years ago, a few years ago. <laughs> so we were talking uh, before you came on uh, a little bit about, uh, we weren't talking on the radio. You and I were talking before we came back to the radio uh, a little bit about some changes in U.S. Syria policy uh, in the last few days. Can you uh, tell folks what we're hearing? Because I think some of our foreign policy has been uh, overshadowed by uh, the Russian interference in our domestic elections. Correct. So yesterday, uh, the United States ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, uh, said that the U.S. no longer considers it a priority, nor is it focused on seeing Syrian President Bashar Assad be removed from power. And it was a very striking statement. Um, and it was basically an overt uh, statement of a shift in U.S. policy um, that many people say actually quietly began under the Obama administration. So like for years, you had President Obama and others saying Assad has to go. This war, you know, he's rained carnage on these people, half a million dead. He cannot possibly stay on as Syria's leader. Over time, they softened their language slightly but it was always a little unclear exactly. But but it never seemed like they were actually putting in much leverage to try to actually get rid of Assad. Now, Haley is simply saying, no, this is no longer our focus. You know, we just have to work with what's there and, you know, see what we can do for the Syrian people. And that's really quite a signal to send on a number of fronts. It's a signal to Russia, uh, which has militarily backed Assad. It, it suggests that we're kind of you know, saying, fine, you can have your own way with, with that uh, country, with Syria. You get your puppet. Right. Well, <laughs> No puppet. No puppet. You're well, the puppet. Uh, well, and then and then the other thing is, um, you know, for the Syrian opposition fighters who have hoped that the U.S. would help them more, uh, it's really quite a, uh, a blow, as well as to a lot of people who, you know, want to see democracy in the Middle East. Um, but, you know, it's also real politic to a degree. So. Or I, I would say to a, like a high degree. Very high degree. They're basically looking at Syria and saying, this guy's better than ISIS. Well, yeah. I mean, the the priority always has been fighting ISIS. But if you talk to people who, who really study the Syrian conflict, they'll tell you that Assad's continued rule feeds ISIS's growth. That one of the reasons people run to join ISIS is because they hate Assad and right. it's just it's this weird, complicated thing. That's but you become... have to pick at some point, right? Like if you got rid of Assad, it might not fuel ISIS's growth, but ISIS would take control of Syria. Well, or at least that's a fear. Well, there is a possibility of a vacuum. There's a possibility of, of an even bigger conflict if, if Assad leaves and it's unclear what comes after him. You have all these various groups fighting each other, not just him. So, yeah, there is that possibility. Right now there is uh, technically a ceasefire that Russia has been trying to enforce but um it's it's a very shaky one at best. there's not really a ceasefire you know we're conducting airstrike oh like we're doing more in, we're doing iraq uh, more in iraq but, yeah. we're, but we're targeting isis right 
as opposed to we've never for the most part we're targeting civilians we're not targeting wait 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 wait. we're not i'm not saying that we're we're not not targeting 200 civilians we killed i don't but i don't think we're targeting civilians i think the change is more along the lines of not caring as much what the collateral damage is from our strike. Excuse me. I'm sorry. Donald Trump during the election said that he is not opposed to killing family members of suspected terrorists, which are civilians. So, like, if we take him at his word, yeah, he might be targeted. Well, it's also civilians. illegal. Like, what he said is is, is, is yeah, illegal yeah, he under care about probably that. a war crime. Yeah. 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 Um, but but the question of whether civilians die when you are targeting uh, a combatant is is another question, and and I think is. Uh, look, I would love to be in the black and white space of saying, like, yeah, every time you kill a civilian, it's totally wrong. And I mean, it is wrong when you kill a civilian, but in the black and white space of saying, like, we should be able to kill only the combatants and never the civilians. And the and the truth is that there's, like, a lot of gray area there, that when you're going after uh, combatants, when you're going after bad guys, when you're trying to fight a war in densely populated areas, sometimes civilians die. And the question is, wh- what is... What is where, when is that acceptable, if ever? But, and if so, what is your intent? I know. I'm, I'm a real squishy. I'm a real squishy lib, but like, I'm anti-killing kids. But I listen, am too. But that listen, I I'm not saying that you. Were, I'm not saying that. I just think that like we. Are you should trying to a, contrast with me? No, like no, 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 no. I'm just saying like Obama did it. Obama killed kids. Obama bombed and killed civilian children. Guys, first of all, the question of intent is important. Secondly, ISIS doesn't play by the same rules. So in a, pl- in a city like Mosul, which is densely populated, ISIS is using civilian shields. Yeah, they I know. know that, I know. and that makes it very, very tricky. And even even if ISIS wasn't intentionally doing this, I mean, just simply trying to send you know these kind of missiles or whatever into an urban area is really hard because you have all these buildings, you don't know what they're covering, what they're not covering. It's it's really difficult. So I don't you know I, I don't know that. So you don't have nukes that pick out the bad guys. Right. Not yet, no. Yeah. Um, but. But one thing to also, you know, bear in mind is that when a president of the United States says something like, I want to bomb the, you know what, out of ISIS, I don't know if we can say that. You can't say that. Family show? Can't? Oh, okay. The president can say it, but you can't. (laughs) Uh, If he says something like that, even if he doesn't actually follow through, simply the statement of this kind of approach sends a signal to allies and adversaries around the world that, hey... The U.S. doesn't care anymore if civilians die, so why should we? So he says he wants to bomb the uh, the crap out of ISIS, and then he does, and there are 200 civilian deaths, and that's that sounds like it was what his plan was all along. And if you're reading it from another country, you have to bend over backward to make the argument that that wasn't uh, at least a consideration, if not his intent, right? That he was going to bomb more indiscriminately or less discriminately, and we are seeing the result of that is 200 civilian deaths in Mosul as a result of U.S. airstrikes. Uh, we saw it in Yemen uh, with um, with that first military raid that killed uh, 14 civilians and did not actually apparently get the target. Um, but but I think part of part of the calculation of the Trump administration too is they want to ramp up this fight, become more aggressive. Partly in the hopes of getting it over faster. Right, they want to bomb them to the table. The idea is bomb ISIS to the table. Mm -hmm. This is the thing. They feel like the idea of accelerating this so that it comes to an end sooner is something one might consider a potential strategy because 
you know, if you let it linger forever and you're always afraid of taking a particular shot and the conflict continues, actually more people might die in the long run. Right. So, so I would say don't get into war, dumb wars like uh, like Iraq, which is basically like we we have sort of stood in there for 13 years now, right? Done, I wouldn't, it basically took a country that was stable, destabilized it, destabilized neighbors, destabilized the region, and uh, we can't get out of there. But you know what's interesting is you're talking about the importance of stability. And so when you talk to, when you look at some some statements from Nikki Haley or Rex Tillerson or whatever about what to do about Assad, you know, and they say, you know what, we're just going to go with what works. That's because they're also in search of stability. So, yeah. I think that's right. I actually, I am of the, the view that we attempted to destabilize uh or get rid of Assad or pushed on Assad uh, to the detriment of U.S. policy interests. You mean, originally speaking, we never should have come out against Correct. Assad's role? Correct. I think that the Obama administration looked at uh, the Arab Spring as this incredible opportunity for de- democracy in the Middle East. And I think that uh, democracy in the Middle East is it's, is not always, but is sometimes at odds with U.S. foreign policy interests with U.S. national interests. And that our, as a nation, while I believe in building democracy, generally speaking, over the course of time, uh, that should be secondary to uh, what is in our uh, national interest, at least in the in the medium term and maybe sometimes in the short term. And I know that sounds awful, like not everybody should have democracy. It but sounds like U.S. policy of Democratic and Republican administrations for decades, actually. Is but, the, the, like. but, the, but that the Obama, <laughs> administ- all the talk. But that the Obama administration broke from uh, and really tried to, you know, I think a lot of it was they were following. I think they were following what was actually happening on its own. I was going to say, like, it, we cannot make the assumption that, like, the U.S. is, you know, going to determine what happens in all of these countries. The people of Egypt, the people of Tunisia... The people of Libya, they had a say in all this, too. Right. And whether we wanted it to happen or it didn't happen, you know, it Mub- happened. Mubar- what was going on with Mubarak <laughs> in Egypt was not something that we were controlling. It was something that we were trying to get ahead of. What I'm saying is I think a lot of people suspect we have more control than we do. Right. I'm not saying we don't have any influence, but... But it's-, it's not like we're using our military in ways that are intended to... like. We're not going to other countries, as Donald Trump has pointed out many times, it's not like we're invading other countries, taking them over, and uh, collecting the spoils of war. We're not like grabbing the oil. Uh, we're not doing the things he that he thinks we... we should. But well, look, there's an argument to be made that if you're going to go to war with another country, uh, that you know you have to pay for that. Uh, and going to war in in or for another country, maybe you should be cut into it. I I actually don't think what he says about that. I think at this point it's insane. It's not like you're going to start like taking oil from Iraq like you know 13 years later. But I do think that like that also is a war crime. If you're right, <laughs> but but if you're not right, but if you're not going to take the spoil, I think one of the reasons you shouldn't go into other countries and shouldn't start wars is that you are not going. If you're in the United States, you're not going to take spoils of war. So you're going to be expand. You're going to be extending a ton of your own resources to go to war in another country to help people that may or may not like you, and that goes for the Middle so East or anywhere else around the world. I, I think well, the way we approached Afghanistan was a complete disaster. I think uh, a targeted effort to go after Osama bin Laden instead of a 13, 15 years, 15 year war in Afghanistan uh, is insane. I think we chose an insane route. 
Now, Hall Tuesday, that was an awesome conversation. Thank you for joining us. Thanks a for having big me. kick on the way out of the Bill Press show today. A lot of energy. Yeah, right. Not four cups of coffee in one, but even better than that. Please go pre-order Shattered inside Hillary Clinton's doomed campaign. I'm the co-author, John Allen, and I'm subbing for Bill Press. We'll see you soon. This uh, is the Bill Press Show.